This morning, we are starting a new sermon series on the letter to the Philippians. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Pew Bibles, or the passage is also printed for you in the worship guide. Um, As I begin talking, what's going to happen is that both Wayne and Bethany are going to pass out a handout. Uh, the handout that is coming around is an overview of Philippians put together by Mike Tolliver from our church family. Um, and this will be a handy resource for you, just a one-page overview to give you a big-picture, bird's-eye view of what's going on in Philippians, who the author is, and what the purpose of uh, the author, who is Paul, uh, his purpose in writing. So um, I would encourage you to maybe fold that in half, slide it into your Bible, and um, hold on to it throughout this uh, series. So as those are coming around, let me just give you a real quick overview of Philippians. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, um, probably around 62 AD, and it was most likely the case that he wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome. That's going to be an important detail for you to remember Uh, as we go through this letter. The person writing this letter was under house arrest, not knowing whether he would be released eventually or executed. So those were the circumstances that the Apostle Paul found himself in as he penned this letter to the church in Philippi. What's cool about Philippi was that it was the first place in Europe to hear the gospel. So on uh, Paul's second missionary journey, he went on three different missionary journeys. On his second, he hit up Philippi and proclaimed the gospel there. Now, um, a little bit later in the service, we're going to actually look at some of the real people that heard the gospel and responded to it in Philippi. But that's a pretty cool detail, isn't it? That uh, Philippi was the first place in Europe to hear the gospel of Jesus. Philippi was a Roman colony. And so this meant that the citizens in Philippi enjoyed the same rights as those uh, in Rome. They enjoyed those rights and those privileges. And what we're going to see in the letter is that Paul had a very special, very deep relationship with this church. Now, this is an ancient letter. Again, I, I said that Paul wrote it around 62 AD. So this letter was written a long time ago. But what we're going to see as we work through it together is that it is incredibly relevant to our lives today. So I want to go ahead and read for us Philippians 1, 1 through 11. This is the introduction um, to the letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's take a moment now to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be present with us and to bless us as we embark on this study together. Holy Spirit, come and dwell with us. We know that you are already here. We pray that you would take your word, this letter penned by the Apostle Paul, and bring it to life. Help us to see its relevancy for our lives. We pray that you would do this regardless of where we find ourselves in this moment, whether we are believing in Jesus, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Holy Spirit, you know us, you know where to find us, and you know how to apply the good news of Christ to our lives in the way that we need it to be applied today. So we plead with you to do that for your good and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bell lived across from me and Katie in our apartment in St. Louis. Belle was uh, an African-American woman, probably about 80 years old, and she had endured her share of trials throughout her life. She had suffered greatly. She had grown up in poverty uh, on a farm in Illinois, had lost many loved ones, including multiple husbands. And as I reflected on Belle's life, uh, she came to mind as I was studying Philippians 1, 1 through 11 this week, as I reflected on her life, what I remembered was her favorite word. At least it appeared to me that it was her favorite word, and that word was beautiful. Everything was beautiful to Belle. Life was beautiful. People were beautiful. And most of all, Jesus was beautiful. When I knew Belle, I had this tension going on in my life. Uh, I, I forget which year of seminary I was in, and I was wrestling with some pretty deep, all-encompassing questions that were plaguing me. I was going through a period in my life, you've, some of you have heard me tell this story before, in which I was questioning the goodness of God. I was wrestling with that question that you know very well. How could God be good and allow such suffering to happen in the world? And it was getting to the point where I couldn't sleep at night. Again, you, you, some of you have heard me talk about this. I, I would, uh, as I was going to sleep at night, I, I would look at Katie as she slept and think, how in the world am I going to tell her that I don't believe any of this anymore and that we're withdrawing from seminary? Well, there were um, multiple things that worked in my life um, in which God revealed himself and his goodness and gave me some contentment in the midst of these big theological questions. But one of those things was Bell's life. You see, Bell suffered far more than I had in my life, and yet life was beautiful, people were beautiful, and Jesus was beautiful. Bell had a profound impact on me to the extent that the day that we found out that she had suddenly passed away in her apartment, I wept. How could it be that a person could have such an impact on another? And this question, this tension that I, that I had as I knew Bell and that continues today basically goes along these lines. How could Bell maintain such a deep and genuine faith and see beauty around her when she endured 
such a hard life. The reason I thought about Bell this week is because as we come to Philippians, I have the same question of the Apostle Paul. How could the Apostle Paul maintain such a deep and genuine faith and see the beauty of those around him despite the trials and tribulations that he had endured and was continuing to endure in his life. What do you do when you suffer? What do you do when you suffer? When heat is turned up in your life, when pressure mounts, when your circumstances are not what you want them to be, what do you do? There are at least two basic options. One is that we grin and we bear it out in our own strength and power. Um, And you know how that goes. You don't need me to tell you um, that, how that unfolds. It may seem like it works in the beginning because you feel like you have control and power. You're able to fix this. But there comes a point when you realize that you're not powerful enough to undo your suffering. Another possibility is that you basically give in to all of the desires of your heart as a distraction. So maybe you um, give in to addiction. Maybe you watch TV nonstop. Maybe, you know, whatever it might be, you distract yourself so you don't have to think about the suffering that you find yourself in. Here's the point. How we respond to suffering ultimately reveals the depth of our character. I want to share with you a quote from David Brooks. We have it up on the slide. Uh, David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, and he wrote this a few years ago. When people look forward, when they plan their lives, they say, how can I plan to make me happy? But when people look backward at the things that made them who they are, they usually don't talk about the moments when they were happy. They usually talk about moments of suffering. So we plan for happiness, but we're formed by suffering. That resonate with you? We plan for happiness, but we're formed by suffering. This intro from the Apostle Paul, it's amazing how much content and how rich these 11 verses really are. And this intro gives us a glimpse into what it means to be deep. I mean, isn't it the case that we all want to be deep people? We want to be known as deep. Maybe at different times in our lives, we, we give in, we surrender to cynicism or distraction like we were talking about. But deep down inside, we want to be known as deep. We want to know how to lead a life of depth, where there's depth to our character, right? Well, as we look at these verses this morning, we see... Two things about Paul's response to suffering in the introduction to the letter that reveal the depth of his character. And they have to do with prayer and people. Prayer and people. First, Paul is prayer-centered. What is evident from this intro is that Paul has a deep and vibrant prayer life. Look at verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You get the sense here that Paul doesn't just pray occasionally, right? 
You get the sense that Paul doesn't just pray every once in a while when he finds himself in a hard situation. He has nowhere else to turn. So he says, oh no, I better turn to God. I found myself here again. No, you don't get that sense at all. You get the sense that Paul prays regularly, that he prays deeply. And notice that he doesn't just pray for himself. We'll come back to that idea a little bit later. But notice the very end of verse 4. He also prays with joy. Now, I I said that throughout this letter, we need to come back to Paul's circumstances as he wrote. And um, this is a place right off the bat where we need to do so. Paul is writing this letter under house arrest. Paul's life up to this point has has already been alive ever since he... I'll put it this way. Ever since he came to know Jesus and began following him, nothing has gone well in a sense in Paul's life. Tragedy has followed him. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been thrown into prison, um, in and out of prison. And now this is an occasion in which he finds himself in prison, awaiting ultimately whether he would be released or executed. These are his circumstances. So these words that we read here in the introduction to Philippians do not come to us in a vacuum. They come to us through a man who is suffering and has suffered. He knows life. He's experienced life. And yet, he can write what he writes. His prayers are centered not simply on himself, but they are centered on others. And he can even go as far as to say that he prays these prayers with joy. This is kind of crazy, I think. This is crazy to our culture. In our culture, and we can be guilty of this in the church as well, we are so prone to cynicism. I know that I am. Soon as something hard comes into my life, it is so easy for me to surrender to cynicism. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, man, not again. This isn't fair. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Now, don't get me wrong. There are times in our lives where those questions are legitimate to ask of God. As we read the Psalms, we see uh, the psalmist throughout asking these kinds of questions. But there's a difference between a genuine faith in which we are wrestling with God and asking those questions and a superficial, shallow faith where we're just uh, complaining and grumbling. And it is so easy for me to be quick to complain and grumble. And I have to admit it. It reveals in the moment a shallow faith. And it would be understandable to me that if Paul just begins this letter laying it all out for the Philippians, right? This is terrible. This keeps happening to me. Why is Jesus doing this to me? I've given my life to him. I've committed my life to his mission. And it just keeps getting me into trouble Jesus, why, 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 why? But there is none of that here. Prayer helps us to remember that we are not in control of the world around us. Prayer decenters us. Might sound weird at first because you might think, well, to be people of depth, don't we need to be centered? Yes, in a sense, but first we need to be decentered. And what I mean by that is that we need to have the center of our lives, the focus of our lives being taken off of ourselves. Prayer reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. How is that? Every time we pray, we're admitting that we're small and that God is big. We're admitting that we can't 
control circumstances. We can't control people. We, we can't even always, sometimes we would say, control ourselves. When we pray, we, it, it is a marker of desperation, of neediness. And so when we pray to God, we are coming to him and saying, God, you have something that I don't have. In fact, you have all of the resources, and I don't have any with, within myself. We find, when we do this, that the center of the universe is not here. The center of the universe is God. Look at verse 6. Paul makes this a little bit more explicit, or at least we can, we can find this idea here in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is making this statement about his brothers and sisters in Jesus at Philippi, but for Paul to make this statement, it's obviously one that he believes for himself. He really, truly believes that spiritual progress is made by recognizing that it is God who is the primary actor in the spiritual life. Recognizing that it is God who began a good work and will complete it is the foundation of the spiritual life. It enlarges our perspective. Because if we are under the false assumption that it is up to us ultimately to make progress in the spiritual life, there, there are multiple things that could happen. Um, one being pride, because those few times in our lives where we actually do make some progress what do we do? We pat ourselves on the back. We compare ourselves to others and say, I did it. Or we realize that it's just far too difficult, and so we give in to cynicism. We um, get depressed because we can't do it. But Paul's life is based on something else altogether. It is based on God and his activity, and that enlarges Paul's perspective. Because if progress in life were dependent on ourselves, I know for myself that my perspective would eventually become very, very small. It would shrink. Because over time, I would come to be aware of all of the things that I am incapable of. But when our belief, our faith is in a God who acts, anything is possible, right? Our perspective is enlarged. This is part of what is keeping Paul going. Another way of saying this is that it is the gospel. This is the gospel. What Paul is hoping for and praying for in verse 6 for the Philippians and for himself is nothing less than the gospel. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus acts. Jesus saves. Jesus redeems. Jesus makes us whole. And this frees Paul, even in the midst of suffering. You don't achieve depth of character in the moment. You prepare for the moment. You train for the moment. What am I talking about? Unfortunately, we are guilty of thinking that depth of character is, all, uh, is ultimately achieved in the moment or in the season of suffering. Like we tell ourselves, okay, 
when those hard circumstances come up, when I find myself in, find myself in the midst of those hard circumstances, when the heat and pressure are, are turned up, watch how I respond. I'm going to respond with faith. I'm going to reveal character. That is naive. It's naive because we are underestimating that pressure and heat. You, you know what I'm talking I do this all the time when it comes to various temptations or, or trials. All right, when I find myself in that situation again, I'm going to respond differently. And I don't prepare. I don't train any differently. And so that thing comes up again, and guess what happens? I find myself repeating the same tendency, repeating the same behavior, because I have not prepared for the moment. I've assumed naively that I can respond uh, with grace uh, in my own power and strength in that moment. We have to prepare for the moment, and this is what we pick up on from the Apostle Paul. He doesn't just pray occasionally. He doesn't just pray every once in a while. He prays regularly. He is preparing for the moment. And that is why we find him in the moment. Yet again, another season, another moment of suffering for Paul. And he is revealing a depth of character because he has prepared himself for it. Another quote from David Brooks. This one is not on slide. It's the same article. He wrote this, The things that lead you astray, those things are fast. Lust fear, vanity, gluttony. The things that we admire most, honesty, humility, self-control, courage, those things take some time and they accumulate slowly. I, I, I think this brings us into the rub, what makes it so hard, particularly in light of the culture in which we live and where, where we want everything to be instantaneous. We want everything to happen immediately, and we bring that same mentality into our spiritual lives. We want, it, we want to be transformed overnight. We want to have a depth of character without actually investing, without trying. It doesn't happen that way. As David Brooks says, the things that we admire most, those things take time and they accumulate slowly. How do they accumulate? By being with Jesus. This is fundamentally what transformed Paul's life. How did Paul, and remember further back in Paul's life, Paul was a guy who hated the church. He hated Jesus. He despised it. He despised it so much that he actually made it his life mission to kill Christians, seriously. That's what he did. That, that was basically the job that he took on for himself. He believed so vehemently against Jesus and his followers and the Christian faith that he made it his ambition to kill them all. But something happened. There was this moment in Paul's life as he's walking on the Damascus road and Jesus appears to him. Now, I get it. You might think, seriously, you believe that? That's crazy. How do you account for what has happened in Paul's life? How do you account for the trance? Something happened. At the, at the very least, give me that. Something happened to Paul and it was dramatic. It was radical. And if we are submitting to the authority of Scripture, it tells us that it happened overnight, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened overnight in the sense that he came to know the true identity of Jesus and put his faith in Jesus and who he was, 
But it didn't happen overnight in which Paul's character was developed and formed, and there was depth added to it. That accumulated over time. How? By spending time with Jesus. There is no way around it. If we want to become people of depth, if we want to become people of character formation, we must spend time with Jesus. Why is that? Scripture tells us that we are being made into the image of Jesus. In other words, God tells us that the model is Jesus. If you want to know what a fully operating, a fully alive, fully functioning human being looks like, look at Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus loves God the Father, and Jesus loves his neighbor as himself. I mean, that is the way to summarize, in a sense, character formation. Love of God and love of neighbor. Paul spent time with Jesus. Paul spent time in prayer, soaking in the word, submitting his life to the authority of God's word over his life, submitting himself to God's plan for his life, even when it didn't go according to Paul's own plan. Paul was decentered so that he could actually be centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice the content of his prayer. The content of his prayer in verses, starting with verse uh, 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is Paul's prayer for the Philippians? Paul's prayer is that they might become fully human, that they might come alive, that they might be the very people that God made them to be in the first place and the people that Jesus redeemed them to be now. That is his prayer. And notice where it begins. That your love may abound more and more. You've heard me mention this a few times since my sabbatical last summer, but while I was on sabbatical last summer, I was struck by something. And it wasn't even like I committed to studying this topic. It just was coming up everywhere I was reading in Scripture. And it's this, this idea of love. Love is inescapable in Scripture. In fact, Jesus says that the law is summarized in love God and love your neighbor. And we see this all over the place. We just uh, spent a few weeks Um, in John 13 through 15, where we were encountering this almost every chapter. This reminder, what is the essence of life? What were we made for? To love God and to love others. That's it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that right off the bat, Paul's prayer begins with, I pray that love may abound and abound. That's so beautiful. That's what I want for myself. That love may abound and abound. And that's my prayer for you, and it should be your your prayer for yourself, that, that the love of Jesus may abound and abound in you. But notice the direction that Paul then takes it. With knowledge and all discernment. So he links love and wisdom. 
You see, without linking it to wisdom, we could make love into kind of a, a sentimental thing. You know, Paul, um, before this, says that he yearns for the Philippians with the affection of Jesus Christ. We could maybe leave it at that level. It'd be easy for Paul to say that. We, you know, we tell people we love them all the time, and we do, but we don't always really mean it, do we? Because how is love ultimately inevitably measured? By our action, by what we actually apply. And so that's what Paul is adding to this prayer. He, he prays that their love would abound more and more, but with all knowledge and discernment, so that they would practice love at the appropriate times and places in their lives. Now, this was critical for them, for these believers um, in their time, because they lived in a time in which Christianity was not popular. They were persecuted for what they believed. And Paul knows this. I don't need to say more about that. We've already uh, mentioned all of the ways that Paul was experiencing persecution because of his belief in Jesus. And, you know, Paul, he could bring to them basically a healthy dose of cynicism. He could say, yeah, let me tell you, following Jesus is really hard. What we should pretty much just simply do is wait for him to return and be delivered from this mess. It's not what he does. Now, he does, he includes that at the end of his prayer, that so on the day of Christ, they would be blameless. But notice what he's doing. In the meantime, don't stand pat. Don't retreat. Don't just sit around waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Lean in to the gospel. Have your character redeemed and shaped and formed so that depth might be added to it, so that on that day when Jesus returns, you will be looking more closely um, like he does. Paul doesn't encourage them to retreat. He doesn't give them cynicism. He basically is preparing them for life in the world, life in the Roman Empire. We need to be prepared in the same ways. I mentioned some of this last week, um, but we live in a culture that is increasingly divided, increasingly divided. We live in a culture that is increasingly marked by hypocrisy, and we see this most especially in politics. And as Christians, the danger could be that we um, have this false belief that one party over the other is basically the path of Jesus. When we do that, we are giving in to worldly things. We are losing our identity as followers of Jesus when we do that. It doesn't, you pick the party, you pick which direction, it holds true for each. We're all guilty of this. But what God's word is, wants to do in our lives is it wants to form us and shape us so that we would be a peculiar people in our culture. So that people wouldn't be able to, to figure out, are you conservative? Are you, what, like, what in the world are you? And where do you get this depth of character and this ability to love your neighbor, even though they maybe persecute you and believe differently than you? Where does that come from? That's what Paul is after in these disciples. And the good news for us, as you, you've, I've talked about this before, the good news for us moving forward in our culture is that we're going to get the opportunity to find out the depth of our character. Because it's going to become increasingly more difficult 
to be Christian in our culture. We're going to start to have more in common with our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. This is going to be really wonderful. I'm, I'm totally serious. Because we are going to actually get to experience the abundant life that Jesus talks about. The Bible is going to begin to make more sense. We're going to read these contexts and we're going to see, oh, cultures where people don't believe what we believe, but we're called to love them. We're called to proclaim the gospel. This is beginning, brothers and sisters, we have to have depth of character. We have depth of character by being decentered and spending time with Jesus. The second thing that reveals the depth of Paul's character is that he is people-focused in his suffering. He's people-focused. And this is maybe what is most incredible to me in this passage because I'm, I'm more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. I guess that's just a way of saying I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. You could have just started the sentence that way. And so when the heat is turned up in my life, when I'm suffering, my natural inclination is to isolate myself. I don't feel like being around people. Now, again, there's a time and a place for needing uh, a break from people. Uh, I can, of all people, tell you about that. But there's also times in my life where it becomes unhealthy, and it becomes not what God desires. Paul does not isolate himself from people. He actually leans into relationship. He leans into people here. And it's not just working one way or the other. It's not just simply that um, Paul is writing to encourage the Philippians. I mean, that's what is remarkable about this letter, that that is essentially why Paul is writing, to encourage the Philippians, even though he is suffering, even though he's under house arrest, not knowing if he's going to end up being executed, he's writing a letter of joy to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ. But it also works the other way. He's writing to encourage them because he has been so deeply encouraged by the Philippians. One of the big reasons that he's writing is simply to say thank you for a financial gift that they had sent him. We'll see this eventually in chapter 4. The Philippians have supported Paul's ministry, not just through prayer, but through financial support. And so Paul has been dependent on them. He's relied on them. He's leaning into people. He's people-focused. And that's why even in his suffering, he can pray not just simply prayers for himself, but prayers for others. Paul is thankful for them. They bring him joy. And he refers to them in verse 4, as partners in the gospel, verse 5, he says that he can write to them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then later on in verse um, 7, he refers to them as partakers of grace. That's a lovely phrase, partakers of grace. Paul's basically saying, we're all in this together. Don't, don't think that I'm some super Christian. We are all in this together. We are all experiencing a level of suffering in our lives. We're all needy and desperate, and we are partakers of the grace of Jesus together. Who are some of these people that Paul is referring to? Sometimes when I read Scripture, it's hard to not, well, we, we can't have faces, right? But to not have names, it, it, it can become really abstract, but 
we actually know some of the actual people that Paul was writing to. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And in Acts 16, verses 11 through 40, Paul is in Philippi. Remember, as I said in the beginning, it's the first time the gospel is coming to a place in Europe. The first person that Paul meets that responds to the gospel is a woman named Lydia. Lydia Lydia is a purple cloth dealer. How many purple cloth dealers do we have here this morning? I don't expect any hands to go up. But real quick, uh, I'm running out of time, but Lydia, you could think of her as basically... um, a CEO in the fashion industry. In, in, in her time and place, that's how you could think of. She, she, was, she traveled, and so she most likely made a lot of money. And Paul encounters her. She's in the midst of a group of women who are praying. She's seeking the true knowledge of God, and Paul proclaims Jesus to her, and it says that God opened her heart to believe. Lydia became a follower of Jesus. We don't know exactly how many days Paul was in Philippi. It just tells us that he was there for some days. The second person that he proclaims the gospel to in response is a slave girl who is possessed by an evil spirit. And this is a dramatic scene in Philippi where they basically exercise this demon from her and she puts her faith in Jesus. This woman would have been poor. She was a slave girl. And the fact that she's possessed by a demon, being used by men, selling her for her fortune-telling and so forth, she was a woman who was taken advantage of. And then finally, the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas end up in prison. Why? Because the slave girl responded in faith to Jesus. And her owners got really angry at Paul and Silas because they're going to lose out on their business now. So Paul and Silas are beaten. Again, Paul suffers, thrown into prison In the middle of the night, an earthquake happens. This jailer is about to kill himself because the prisoners are going to escape, and he's going to be blamed for it. But Paul and Silas stay put. And the Philippian jailer is so impacted by this that he says, what must I do to be saved? And they proclaim the gospel to him, and him and his household believe and are baptized. The Philippian jailer would have been a middle-class worker. You see the picture that's coming together here, the foundation of the church in Philippi? A rich woman, a poor woman, and a middle-class worker. And if I had time, there's so much more I could say about their, their demographics. But this is the foundation of the church in Philippi. These are three of the people, 10 years later, that Paul would have been writing to. Assuming they're still alive, Lydia would have read, heard this letter read aloud as they were assembled together for worship. The slave girl, the former slave girl, would have heard this letter. The Philippian jailer would have heard this letter. Real people, real faces, who became an integral part of Paul's ministry in supporting him. The question I have for this, for us, is this. In our suffering, when things are hard, are we willing to lean into not only Jesus, but into each other? So not isolate ourselves, but to actually lean into Christian community, to make ourselves vulnerable and needy before our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be committed to walking alongside others and meeting their needs, but as the Apostle Paul has done in his life, making himself vulnerable and needy to others, basically saying, my ministry cannot continue unless you support me. And not only that, but in the ancient times in that day, being imprisoned as Paul was would have brought shame upon himself. And nobody else would have been there in that prison meeting his needs. And so it's likely that 
Churches like the church at Philippi were um, sending Paul food and um, keeping him sustained. Paul made himself vulnerable. He was willing to ask for help. Partnership in the gospel. One of my prayers for us this summer as we work through Philippians is that God would burden our hearts for going deeper in partnership with one another. We're in this together. Your suffering is my suffering. The Bible tells us that. We're in this together. And that's why Paul could write with joy to the Philippians, because they had his back. May our togetherness in the gospel, may our unity in the gospel, may our partnership in the gospel in the sense that we are sharing the same need for Jesus and we're also on the same mission together, may that be such an attractive invitation to our city and our neighborhoods. This is what Philippians is all about, partnership in the gospel. This past week... um, I attended uh, something in the neighborhood uh, put on by Westside Grows. It's a local community development organization. Um, it was their first annual meeting and Best of the West Awards. And shout out to Thomas Wellman, um, who received an award for his care of Tilton Park. That was pretty awesome. And you're pretty awesome, too, because I received an award um, on behalf of City Church. It was in the category of one of the heroes of the community. So God is at work. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. (laughs) Partnership in the gospel there. I forget what I was talking about. West Side Gross. Oh, yes. I was at this event, and to my surprise, at least a little bit, they started it with having an African-American pastor in the neighborhood pray. And he began his prayer like this, God of our weary years, God of our silent tears. I didn't know this, um, but these are lines from Lift Every Voice and Sing, a poem written by James Weldon Johnson. It was performed for the first time by 500 school children in celebration of Abraham Lincoln's birthday on February 12th. 1900. The poem was later set to music by Johnson's brother and today is one of the most cherished songs of the African-American civil rights movement and is often referred to as the Black National Anthem. I bring this up because the two lines of his prayer really resonated with me, actually created a contrast for me. I had to ask the question, I don't know that I pray like that. Maybe it's because I don't know that kind of suffering. I want to end by saying this, that if we want to grow into a people with depth of character, we would do well to apprentice ourselves to the black church. If you want to look throughout American history at a church that knows how to suffer well, suffer redemptively, suffer for the glory of God, look no further than the black church. They've been doing it from the beginning. And I'm telling you now, as going back to what I said earlier, it is going to get harder and harder for us to be people of faith in our culture. And I, for one, am going to look to the black church for help because this is not new for them. This is old school for them. And so we would do well to apprentice ourselves 
to them. Uh, Micah Edmison, who is an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor, um, in an article, we've been walking with God through pain and suffering for a long time, says this, the African-American church tradition represents a notable exception to the general inability of American Christianity to suffer well. Redemptive suffering is a widespread and deeply cherished belief within the black church tradition, tracing back over 300 years. This is why the black church gave the wider culture sacred music forms like the spirituals and gospel songs, which are distinct for their prevalent themes of hopeful suffering. Depth of character. Knowing how to suffer well for the glory of God. As we work through Philippians this summer, this is what this series is about. It's about God by His grace adding depth to our character. Adding depth to our character as we learn to decenter ourselves and center ourselves on the gospel, on who Jesus is and what He's done, and also by becoming more people focused. And I would encourage you to do this. If you're looking for a little exercise over the summer, you want help. Um, in looking to resources and models for how to do this, the black church is one of them. And I'd be willing to share with you um, more resources than you could even have time to do with this summer or beyond. I'd be glad to do that. Let's uh, go to God in prayer. Father, humble us. Keep us in touch with our great need for Jesus. May we receive his grace and his kindness and his mercy afresh every day. And may this cause us to be centered on him and focused on others. Father, you alone are able to create a depth of character within us, a Christ-likeness. So we look to you. We pray that you would create within us a desire to know you more, to spend time with you, uh, if we want the good things to accumulate in our lives, it's going to take time. So help us to slow down this summer. Help us to put aside some of the distractions to be able to be present with you, to hear your word, and to learn how to suffer well for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.